Well, it is a great honor and a great joy to humbly open the Word of God to you each and every Lord's Day. And this morning I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 7 as we continue to go verse by verse through this wonderful gospel. This morning we will be looking at verses 21 through 29. Follow along as I read the words of our Lord here in his Sermon on the Mount, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house. And it fell and great was its fall. The result was that when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. I have labored much over this text down through the years and especially the last few weeks, not only to understand it clearly, but to effectively preach it. For dear friends before us, we have perhaps the most sobering and terrifying texts of all Scripture. Here we have the invitation of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. An invitation that is far different from the emotional machinations of the modern evangelist that will stampede herds of unbelievers through the wide gate of cheap grace, where any positive response to Jesus is quickly interpreted as genuine saving faith. An invitation that is radically different than contemporary evangelicalism, that knows no limits to its quest to somehow make the gate of conversion as inclusive and as non-offensive as it possibly can be, so that the masses will feel comfortable going through it. And then they will endeavor to make the way of following Christ so broad that obedience is merely optional. Instead, we see here that Jesus clearly exhorts each individual person to search for the narrow gate as we review what we've learned thus far from verse 13 and following. This narrow gate of salvation that very few will find, according to verse 14. 
It will be a gate that will require careful inquiry, careful examination. It's not something you do on a whim in the midst of heated emotion in between a verse of scripture or even a verse of some hymn that's being sung at the end of a service. But then when the gate is found, the Lord Jesus says to enter it, knowing full well that it will be a demanding gate. It will not be easy. It will require, as we've learned, a squeezing, a groaning, a striving. In fact, the parallel passage in Luke 13, 24, Jesus says, strive to enter the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Why will they not be able? Very simply, because the cost of following Christ will be too high for most. Because many people will want to come through the gate, bringing their pride and their lusts, the baggage of their sin. They will refuse to rid themselves of the worldly pleasures that tend to captivate. It's too hard to oppose Satan's ridicule as the world of their family and friends give opposition to the truth. So they will choose the wide gate that has no restrictions, makes no demands, but still promises heaven, albeit it is a lie. The gate with no persecution, the way of ease, the way that is culturally acceptable. So Jesus admonishes the people to enter that narrow gate, literally to fight your way into the kingdom as you throw off your self-righteousness as you abandon your sexual looseness, as you jettison all of your demands for self-fulfillment and self-esteem and self-indulgence, and in brokenness of heart you come before Christ and you confess your sin. You agree with Him about the status of your fallenness. And you cry out for the divine mercy and grace that He will so quickly give. But instead... Jesus has told us that the many will not go this way. Instead, they will waltz through the wide gate of easy believism, arm in arm with their family and with their friends and with their culture. Perhaps they will perform some ritual such as just baptism or, or some other ritual like mass. For them, God's grace is cheap. It's not an issue of heart repent, repentance. No issue, as Jesus would say, of self-denial, of taking up a cross daily and following him. But rather, it's just some religious act. And you do those religious acts, at least when people are watching. And you convince yourself that somehow you have become righteous in the eyes of God. Well, then Jesus warned us, as we learned last week, of the false teachers that will preach a wide gate gospel in a broad way of sanctification. Some will do it with full knowledge and others, if not most, are utterly oblivious to the error that they will teach, to their deceptions. And unwittingly, perhaps a Sunday school teacher or a pastor or an evangelist or a missionary will teach the wide gate and the broad way. And many will unwittingly and happily live on that broad way that leads to destruction. And now, Jesus comes to this frightening conclusion. Frankly, a heart-wrenching warning to very religious people who are utterly convinced of their standing before God, and yet they are deceived. Those who 
chose the wide gate, the popular gate. As I mentioned last week in the list of warnings, the politically and religiously correct gate, the gate of ecumenism, the interdenominational gate where you reduce Jesus to his most common denominator, that Jesus is love. And let's just leave it at that and all get along. The gate of promise keepers, the gate of trace deists, the gate of the seeker sensitive People where opinion polls and surveys dictate methodology, not theology. The bestseller gate, the award winning gate, the the revivalism gate, the churchianity gate where you get cotton candy sermonettes for Christianettes and you replace the expository preaching of the word of God with drama. And a long period of worship music. Those people will be the ones that chose the gate of emotionalism, the gate of sensationalism, of mysticism, where you see visions and you allow intuition and experience to validate your truth claims. The gate of feelings where faith healers and prosperity preachers will distort the gospel of Christ for personal gain. They will have chosen the gate of religious rituals and ceremony. They will claim some creed or join some church or become a part of some denomination. This will be the gate that is so well illustrated in popular religious music and seminars and all of the movements that so many of the movements that we see. And unlike the words of Jesus earlier in Matthew five in the Beatitudes. These will be the gates that never require you to really examine your heart There will be no need with the wide gate to mourn over sin, to hunger and thirst after righteousness. There will be no need in this broad way for the ongoing confession of sin and a longing to be more like Christ. No real desire to live for the glory of God. You just play church. On this way, there will be those that will realize that there's no need to have the fruit of spiritual growth. In your life, where the passion of one's heart and the pattern of one's life indicates growth, as Peter says, in faith and in moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness and love. The true tests of genuine saving faith. This will not be indicative of the hearts of the people that Jesus addresses in this text. Oh, dear friends, the tragic consequences of self-deception. The ultimate consequence will be an inferno of an everlasting hell. And my most sincere desire is that none of you that I love so dearly will be counted among that number. According to the word of God, most will stand before the divine bar of justice with a clenched fist and blasphemies upon their lips. But here we see in this text that many others will stand With outstretched hands in utter dismay and bewilderment, desperate and dumbfounded. As we look closely this morning at the words of Jesus, we will see three primary categories. We will see a warning, a defense and a sentence. 
First of all, notice the warning that Jesus gives in verse 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, certainly we have many people that claim Jesus is Lord. But here we see that not all of them that make that claim will enter the kingdom. Lord, Lord, used two times here, indicates their perceived zeal and their devotion to Christ. Dear friends, Jesus is not addressing heretics here. He's not addressing apostates. He's not addressing agnostics or atheists here. He's not addressing pagan people. He's addressing those who have professed Christ as Savior. Obviously, not all who profess him actually possess him. It's estimated that in the United States today, about 50 percent of Americans profess to be followers of Christ and call themselves born again Christians. But you have to wonder how many actually entered the kingdom on God's terms. According to Jesus, only a few. Many would estimate that less than half of those who claim Christ as their Savior are in fact truly regenerate. Well, how do you know, you might ask? Well, Jesus answers that in verse 21 and many other passages. But at the end of verse 21, he says, but he who does the will of my father who is in heaven. In other words, he will be these people will be the only ones that will enter the kingdom. You see, friends, obedience, and I want you to hear this, obedience is the only reliable indicator of one's faith in Christ. Remember in the previous verses, Jesus has said that good trees will bear good fruit. You see, a mere verbal profession of faith in Christ, or even some intellectual awareness of Jesus or of the gospel, should never be used to validate the genuineness of your faith. Many pastors and evangelists erroneously tell folks to never doubt your salvation once you've professed Christ or once you've been baptized or whatever. But, beloved, I would tell you on the basis of the word of God, one's profession does not prove one's faith. Obedience in Christ is the only thing that can do that. That's why the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. He tells the people at the church of Corinth, test yourselves to see if you're truly believers. Examine yourselves, he says, or do you not, or do you not know or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? In other words, look closely at your motives, examine your heart's desires, be brutally honest with the patterns of your secret life for therein reveals the truth of your faith. Do your inner motives long for holiness? Do you have a passion to know the Lord more intimately? Do you have a sincere desire to give Him the glory? And are you frustrated? And do you cry out with conviction for forgiveness when you fall short of these things? That's the stuff of genuine Christianity as opposed to churchianity and religious hypocrisy. Scripture is very clear. If you have patterns of hypocrisy, greed, immorality, homosexuality, sin without remorse, no desire to repent. If your life is, has a pattern of deception, if you're dishonest, 
If you're filled with anger, if you're hateful, vengeful, arrogant, if you love the spotlight, if you are one who can be characterized as a malicious gossip, if you have no real love for God and his people, and you have no real appetite for the word of God, and you really have no prayer life, and quite frankly, you have to kind of drag yourself to hear the preaching of the word and the teaching of the word. If you secretly love the world more than Christ and you find yourself compromising at the slightest rejection, dear friend, I don't care what your experience has been. I don't care what claim you have made. I don't care how many aisles you have walked or how many prayers you have repeated. I don't care how many altars you have knelt before. You are unsaved. Proverbs 30 and verse 12 warns, There is a kind who is pure in his own eyes, yet is not washed from his filthiness. And unfortunately, our contemporary evangelical culture has redefined what, what it is to be a Christian. And sadly today, all you have to do to be called a Christian is to basically be affiliated with some church. It doesn't matter how you live. But according to Jesus, the key is doing the will of the Father. It begins in your heart and it's manifested in your life as the life of a good tree bears the good fruit. And these people that will stand before the Lord someday in judgment did not have that in their heart. They had deceived themselves and deceived others. In Hebrews 5, verse 9, the Lord makes it abundantly clear. He says, He, referring to Jesus, became to all those who obey him the source of eternal life. Friends, please hear this. The ultimate deception of Satan is to create a religious culture like the one in which we now live that convinces people that they are saved when in fact they are not. Those that will preach the wide gate and the broad way. And in our contemporary evangelical culture, we are routinely told that all we need to do is profess Christ and then forget about it. Now, indeed, we don't earn our salvation by works. Scripture is so clear about that. But, beloved, we do prove our salvation by works. James 2 and verse 17, the Spirit of God speaks to us through James and says, Faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. And Jesus says in John 8 and verse 31, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And certainly, isn't it a joy? Those who truly know Christ, those of you that truly know Christ, you know it in your heart. How do you know it? How how do you know you're not one of these that are being deceived? How can you have assurance? Well, we've spoke on this many times before, but certainly 1 John 5, 13 is a key text. That those things are written that we might know. And certainly the tests in 1 John are doctrinal tests, moral tests. You look and you see, do you really love Christ? Do you really love the brethren? Do you really love righteousness? Do you love your neighbor? Do you love your enemies? Those types of things. It's interesting that in the Lord's great commission to go into all the world, he says, go into all the world and do what? Make disciples. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen through twenty. And it's interesting that 
In Scripture, the word disciple is used consistently as a synonym for believer, especially in the book of Acts. You see, a Christian is one whose faith expresses itself in humble submission to the object of that faith, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Many indicate that discipleship is the number one problem in even in in evangelism around the world. And certainly there must be biblical follow up. There needs to be the training of men and women to equip the saints and so on. But friends, I would argue that the number one problem in evangelism around the world is not discipleship. It's conversion. I have a wonderful privilege, as many of you know, and you have a part of this as well as you help support me. And some of you, I hope, are still planning on going and you will go to Africa this uh, July when I have a chance to go and teach in a seminary there in Katali and speak to in some churches there in Nairobi. And it's wonderful that the topic they've they've asked me to teach is that of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Because many of these men and some women who will be coming from all over Africa, many of them walking for months just to get there. Many of them are coming because they have been confused about the gospel of Christ. And friends, if you do not understand the gospel of Jesus, if you do not understand conversion, then discipleship is a mute issue. You can't disciple people who are not Saved. What a wonderful privilege we will all have to affect literally millions this July and hopefully in other times to come. And tragically, the Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of churches and ministries destroyed by every imaginable scandal. Why? I believe because so many of these ministries were led by false professors. Of Christ. There is a heretical movement out today. Well, there are many of them. I spent a few hours on the Internet and some other places studying one of them. And I consider myself to be at least a reasonable man and moderately intelligent, at least somewhere in the average range. And friends, I couldn't understand half of what they said. It was the biggest bunch of gobbledygook. It was almost like schizophrenic word salad. And yet there were many people who were throwing in their two cents and the distortion of Scripture was just staggering. But in this movement, which, by the way, the total grace movement is just kind of repackaged antinomianism. You know, just don't worry about your sin. Stop talking about sin. Uh, All man's sins have been put to death in Christ. Enjoy his total grace and so on. And they would argue that preachers like me, they, they, they call preachers like me condemnation preachers. Preachers that talk about sin and repentance and, and judgment and hell, they're all legalists and, and they don't understand grace. But friends, quite the contrary, quite the contrary is, is true. You see, one who understands grace understands that it is the grace of God that transforms the heart of a sinner, that makes them a new creature in Christ. And the surest evidence of genuine, transforming, saving faith is the humble obedience and the loyal devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 3, we read, The one who says, I have come to know Him, and does not keep His commandments, 
is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he, Jesus, walked. After being on the inside world of a number of popular Christian movements, when I was in counseling and consulting with ministries, especially in the contemporary and gospel music, so-called industry, it's very hard for me to watch what goes on today. It's hard for me to buy records or listen to much of what's out there, certainly to go to many of the concerts, because I know the inside story. And I have no doubt that many of the people that fill the stages of these concerts are those that will someday stand before the Lord, as we've read about here in Matthew 7. Because I know that many of them are like those listed in Paul's list of 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. You don't need to turn there. Let me give it to you. There, the Spirit of God tells us through the Apostle, Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, those would be those that indulge in sexual immorality in all its various forms, nor idolaters, who are those who worship a false god or are a part of some false religious system. Or adulterers, who would be married people who indulge in sexual acts outside of marriage. Nor the effeminate, those would be ones who blur the God-intended male-female roles, who corrupt the, the, the natural sexual functioning of a man and a woman. We read about them in terms of gender perversions like transvestism and transsexualism. Nor homosexuals, sodomites, lesbians. Nor thieves, nor covetous people. Those would be those who desire what others have and they're discontent with what, with what they have. Nor drunkards, no revelers, which would be those revelers or those in the Greek that destroy other people with words. Nor swindlers, those would be, of course, extortionists that either directly or indirectly embezzle money and possessions from other people. None of those people, he goes on to say, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And so there is the warning that we see in Matthew chapter 7. But Jesus goes on from there. And describes, even prophetically, the defense that will be given. Notice in verse 22 that many will stand before the Lord in judgment day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do some impressive religious things in your name? In other words, the grammar here would indicate that these people are incredulous. They, they, they're dumbfounded. They, they can't believe they're standing before the Lord Jesus Christ, not as Savior, but as judge and executioner. And in utter horror and desperation, they, they begin to plead their case, a case that is built upon self-deception. Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? I find it very fascinating as I've meditated on this text that the list of perceived evidences they choose to use to vindicate themselves are all three 
external acts of religious sensationalism that are commonplace in modern day Pentecostalism and the fringes of charismaticism, prophecies, exorcisms and miracle working. Let me address those for a moment. Prophecies here would be those who claim that somehow they speak for God, that God has spoken to them and now they're speaking for God. In other words, something outside the scripture. It's interesting. I cannot tell you how many counseling sessions I've had over the years where I've had confused Christians who attend churches and have been a part of movements where somebody is always telling them or they're even telling themselves and other people, well, God told me this. God told me that I have a word from God and I can't wait to share it with you. And then, of course, you have the whole tongues movement where Only an elite few will claim that somehow God speaks directly to them and through them. You turn on things like TBN, where you will see false teachers constantly predicting the future, claiming that God has spoken to them in some unique way. And of course, they always make their prophecies in very vague, ethereal types of terms that cannot be easily determined or verified. And of course, anyone that makes such claims based on the word of God is a false teacher because, beloved, the canon is closed. There is no more revelation. It it, it is right here in this book. And you see these kinds of people everywhere in our culture today. Could they be a part of that group on that day of judgment? But Lord, we, we, we did exercise exorcisms. We cast out demons in your name. You know, Satan has deceived many people this, these days in our culture. There, there is a fixation on demons, on binding, rebuking. Oh, you've got people writing letters to, to Satan. There are area churches that I know of. People have talked with me and have talked with me in utter frustration and horror where People go into rooms and have private exorcisms and casting out demons. Certainly there are a lot of gurus these days making a lot of money off of what we would we would call ek ballistic um, ministries. Ek meaning out ballistic to throw the Greek term for casting out demons. Do you remember the Jewish exorcists, the sons of Sceva in Acts 19? They made their living casting out demons, didn't they? But it was all phony. Remember the one evil spirit said to them, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who are you? And you see the same type of thing happening today. Satan loves self-appointed, self-deluded imposters that will confuse the work of Christ and distort the gospel. And in these movements, you will find people replacing repentance with some phony deliverance. And, of course, it draws attention to Satan and to the exorcists themselves and to the spiritual, spiritually elite who are quite certain they are serving Christ. But, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name and we also performed miracles. You know, while most of the so-called miracles of the faith healers are merely hoaxes contrived by clever magicians. Jesus predicted that Satan would empower counterfeit miracle workers. 
He tells us in Matthew 24, 24, that false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. And all over today, we see naive, gullible, ignorant and desperate people chasing after these deceivers. The gate is so wide for these people that you have to have stadiums to pack them in. People by the thousands being slain in the spirit, laughing in the spirit, deceptive signs and wonders. No claim is considered too outlandish. Paul warns of lying signs and wonders of Satan in 1 Thessalonians 2, 8 through 10. But here Jesus warns of, of the tragic end of their deceptions, the tragic consequences of, of their frauds, of their fakery. And yet because of the uncanny power of self-deception, they honestly believed that they were serving Christ. And dear friends, that is the tragedy of it all. Remember also that the teaching of the wide gate and the broad way will be indicative of these people. And you might ask, well, how is that the case with the miracle workers? Well, simply they get people to follow a man, not Christ. They get people to come to Jesus as blesser, not as Lord. They get people to see Jesus as some cosmic butler that is there to do their bidding at the snap of their finger. They see him as the almighty ATM machine that dispenses wealth and performs personal miracles to make us happy. None of that is consistent with the truth of saving grace in the gospel of Christ. For them, he becomes the satisfier of unmet needs, not the savior of sin. So folks come to Jesus for what they can get in this life for themselves, not for how they can sacrifice and be content to be rewarded someday yet future. So the Lord gives the warning and he hears the, the pathetic and the passionate defense. And then he pronounces judgment on them. And he says in verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. New here is a Hebrew idiom denoting an intimate, loving relationship often used to describe marital intimacy. Certainly, Jesus said in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. But he says, I never knew you. Yes, I saw all your religious acts. I witnessed your religious veneer, but I saw through your heart. Yes, you deceived yourself. You entered through the wide gate and lived on the broad way and you deceived many other people. But the charade is over now. Your hypocrisy will now end forever. Your sickening, self-righteous, blasphemous, religious shenanigans have been exposed. No more justifications. No more rationalizations. No more excuses. Now the penetrating light of my divine omnipotence and omniscience will expose you and lay you bare. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Dear friends, imagine the scene. And yes, for some, the conversation might go like this. Yes, I, I know you served the Calvary Bible Church. Yes, I know your doctrine was orthodox. Yes, I, I know you demonstrated great zeal at times and devotion for me, at least with your lips. But you never really loved me in your heart. You just told yourself you did and you got others to tell you the same. 
You only did what was culturally acceptable in your community. There was never any real hard examination at your so-called conversion. There was no mourning over sin. You never hungered and thirsted for righteousness in your life. There was no ongoing confession in your life. There was no longing to be more like me. There was no desire to live for my glory. There was no real fruit of spiritual growth in your life. You never manifested any growth in faith, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness and love. No, life was all about you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Practice lawlessness. The grammar is very interesting here. It indicates a continuous habitual action. The pattern of your heart, your life dominating motivations, the secret desires of your heart were lawless. They were rebellious. You violated my law to give me glory and to love your neighbor as much as yourself. You were self-serving. You were self-centered. You were self-indulgent. You were just plain, downright selfish. And notice the illustration that Jesus uses. Verses 24 through 27. He talks about two men, a wise man and a foolish man. And each built a religious house representing the two options of salvation, the narrow gate, the wide gate, and the narrow way and the broad way. And the house ultimately represents a life of obedience versus one of hypocrisy. And it's interesting, as you read the text, you see that the wise man built his faith upon a rock. The term Petra here refers to a massive rock, an unmovable rock, bedrock. And of course, this would refer to the Gibraltar of the word of God. Remember, in Matthew 16, Peter had a confession. Jesus was asking, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, thou art the son, uh, the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him that flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven and upon this rock, I will build my church, the rock of divine revelation. So the wise man builds his house upon the rock of the word of God, not the word of men, not some phony gospel of the wide gate, according to Satan. You see, God's word is the only bedrock of truth upon which we can lay the foundation of our faith. But the foolish man comes along and he builds his spiritual house upon the shifting sands, the unstable sands of a counterfeit gospel. One like the scribes and the Pharisees promoted and one like the many examples of the wide gate gospel that we have discussed. The wise man laid foundation the hard way. In the rock. Jesus says in Luke 648 that he dug deep and laid a foundation upon the rock. Friends, if you've ever tried to lay a foundation in rock, you will understand what this is referring to. I know what it's like just to try to dig fence posts in Tennessee rock. It's much easier to do it in sand. But the foolish man lays his foundation the easy way. In the sand. The shifting sands of human reason, the shifting sands of human philosophies, of humanly contrived systems of works righteousness, where you just earn your way into heaven, or you play the whole churchianity game, which is so indicative of Sunday in the South, isn't it? 
Fools love the easy way. They love the simple way. They love the quick way. They love formulas. I saw a track not too long ago, a gospel track, three steps to a full to a full and meaningful life. They love the best selling types of things like I've seen the best selling series, God's little instruction book, the quick way, the easy way, the simple way, frivolous dribble, as superficial as water on a plate. And then notice in verses 25 through 27, we read about the storms of divine judgment that come. And here the hypocrite lives and dies in his self-delusion. Those who fail to be, as James 1.22 says, doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Job speaks about them in Job 27 verses 8 through 9. He says, for what is the hope of the hypocrite? Though he may gain much, if God takes away his life. Will God hear his cry when trouble comes upon him? The answer is no. Oh, dear friends, please hear the word of the Lord. If you have entered through the wide gate and you are now traveling on the broad way, the rain of divine judgment will wash away like a flood your faith, your phony faith. And the furious winds of divine wrath will burst upon your Little house of religious cards, all of your cleverly disguised religious rituals and cunning rationalizations and excuses and justifications will be blown away with the fury of the tempest of divine judgment. Verse 27 at the end, and his house fell and great was its fall. I close this morning with a very powerful quote from John Trapp, a great Puritan theologian in England in 1650, where he poignantly summarizes the final words of our Lord's sermon. And it struck me with such force that I thought, you know, I just want to share this with my dear people. Here he describes what Jesus will say to those people and he summarizes those three horrifying words to those who lived in self-deception here's what he say says and i quote oh direful and dreadful sentence such as shall make the very heart strings crack and their hearts fall asunder in their bosoms like drops of water Surely if the gentle voice of God and the cool of the day in Genesis 3.8 were so terrible to our first parents, and if his sweet voice in the preaching of the gospel of grace be so formidable to the wicked that Felix trembled and the stoutest are quailed, the edge of their fury is rebated, their hearts often ache and quake within them, what will they do when the lion of the tribe of Judah shall roar out upon them this fearful sentence? that breathes out nothing but fire and brimstone, stings and horrors, woe and alas, seas of vengeance, and the worm that never dieth, torments without end and past imaginations. The desperate soldiers fell before him to the ground in the garden, when in the state of his humility he said, but I am he. How will the wicked stand before him? In his majesty. Oh, dear friends, examine yourself to see if you be in the faith. 
And if you're not, oh, in humility, won't you confess your sin and plead his undeserved mercy and grace and come and strive and enter in through that narrow gate and begin to traverse that narrow way. Lest someday you too experience the eternal consequences of self-deception. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are sobered by the words of the Lord Jesus. And Lord, we cry out to you in desperation for those that might be deceived, who have played this cultural churchianity game that is so indicative of our society. Oh, Lord, how I pray that the penetrating truth of the gospel of Christ will find its way into some sinner's heart even here today. And Lord, may they flee from the wrath to come by fleeing into the arms of the Savior that will never cast out anyone who cries out for forgiveness. And Lord, for those of us that know you, may these sobering words motivate us to share the gospel of Christ with the lost. May you give us power to not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. With great joy and great thanksgiving. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.